0: This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Well, it's um, rather a long time since the last episode, but here we go with episode 9 of the podcast Culture and Value. My name is Mark English. It was in March of this year, 2022, that I recorded a short reflection on nationalism in which I obliquely alluded to the situation in Ukraine where the early stages of Russia's so-called special military operation were playing themselves out. That little talk attracted a certain amount of criticism. What I intend to do here is to extend the reflections of the previous episode by looking at some of those reactions and also by looking at a remarkable passage I recently came across in a novel written in the early stages of World War II by Marjorie Hellingham. My friend Alan Tapper, whose criticisms of my views on how the West should deal with the Taiwan question I've previously discussed, came in on the Ukraine question also. In a comment posted at the Electric Agora on March the 22nd, he wrote, Here's my take on the current war. It's a conflict between one kind of nationalism, ethnic nationalism, and another, civic nationalism. Putin's ethnic nationalists have mistakenly supposed that deep down Ukrainians share their ethnic ethos. They thought they could liberate this ethnic spirit. All they had to do was to march in and set it free. But in Ukraine, that sort of nationalism has been replaced long ago by civic nationalism, and the latter is a pretty fierce nationalism which they will fight and die for. Meanwhile, the poor Russian soldiers, lacking ethnic fanaticism, have no idea what they're fighting for. This story explains both the gigantic mistake made by Putin and the remarkable resistance his forces have met. Ethno-nationalists are blind to the reality and force of civic nationalism. Civic nationalists, by contrast, can recognise other civic nationalists and can unite internationally, and they are doing so. End of quote. What Alan says here is very speculative and places, I think, too much emphasis on a simple dichotomy. He speculates that the Russian leaders were thinking in terms of liberating the latent Russian ethnic spirit of Ukrainians. I suspect that cold, hard, strategic and economic factors played the decisive role in their thinking. But sure, historical memories and political myths also played a role and are continuing to do so. The distinction between civic and ethnic nationalism is somewhat forced in my opinion. There are as many varieties of nationalism as there are nationalists. Can you categorize them to a point It's useful to categorize, but our categories must also be seen for what they are provisional um, provisional pro- projections in fact. Um, Useful for certain purposes, but, but always always provisional. I expressed the view that sanctions would not work as planned and that there'd be unintended consequences, which is indeed what we've seen. And I made the obvious point that the provision of arms and other military assistance to Ukraine would only drag things out, leading to more death and destruction. I also speculated that many pro-Western Ukrainians had been encouraged by a long series of covert Western interventions in Ukraine and support with arms and military training to believe that NATO forces would ultimately intervene more actively, more openly, more directly on their behalf, whereas NATO commanders and their political masters presumably wished and still wish to avoid precipitating World War War III. I quote a couple more comments from last March by other listeners. Your claim about sanctions is false, and demonstrably so. Your stance incentivizes countries to become nuclear powers, as well as incentivizing countries to increase their investments in conventional armaments and forces. Yours is the stance most likely to result in world war, not the least. Or this. If we cannot respond to naked aggression and invasion within the developed world with military action, and we cannot respond economically, then we are very straightforwardly offering a carte blanche to dictators and kleptocrats to do whatever they like. I know I'm not going to um, be able to resolve these issues here, um, but I'll quote one last comment, or question really, and part of my response to it. Maybe you might say specifically what kind of action or policy you are in favour of. We know that things didn't have to be this way, but now that they are, what would you do? I wrote in response to that. For one thing, I would recommend breaking out of the mentality which got us here. US leaders and policymakers need to realise that the regime change policies pursued over the last couple of decades have not been successful they've had they've had a negative and destabilizing effect on the world at large i'd like to see a reset of relations on the basis of a recognition that the geopolitical balance has shifted and that 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 we're in a new multipolar world the us and its allies have to come to terms with this situation only then will productive dialogue and arms control talks be possible in my opinion that's the end of the quote as I see it all the talk about naked aggression and the demonizing of one side while ignoring the problematic activities of the other all this is war talk I prefer to see what's going on in Ukraine both in geopolitical and in regional historical terms but um I won't go into details here M- maybe maybe in future episodes um instead I want to return to a general point about propaganda and patriotism. Not all, pro- uh, not all patriotic feeling or fervour is the result of crude manipulation. Sometimes it runs deep. Take um, British movies of the World War II era. M- most of them are, if, if they're not just light entertainment, um, patent propaganda and come across to us at least as sentimental and silly. But sometimes, rarely, but sometimes they strike a different note, a truer note. Sometimes they articulate something something deep in the British psyche. I'm thinking in particular of the films produced by Powell and Pressburger. Um, but, uh, but there were others. But my example today is, is a book, not a film. I want to read a passage from a novel by Marjorie Allingham, which was published in 1941 and written at a time when invasion seemed imminent. Marjorie Allingham wrote mainly crime fiction. Uh, Her adventurer hero, Albert Campion, is, as usual, doing very secret things on behalf of the government. His love affair with Amanda Fitton plays out over a number of Allingham's books. Despite the author's habitually jaunty and um, facetious style, her stories are at times um, touching and real. Campion is above all a patriot. His values, his private emotions, his deepest convictions and feelings, his social and amorous attachments... squarely set within the framework of his native culture which is of course the author's native culture also so here's the passage from Marjorie Allingham's Traitor's Purse um, which articulates the central role which the English culture of the time played in Campion's and by extension Allingham's value system the uh, context Um, of this passage is that um, Campion has lost his memory after being knocked on the head Um, and the immediate uh, context is that a traitor had just attempted to bribe him Campion was remembering something, not mentally but emotionally the ghost of an emotional upheaval was, was returning to him It was both terrifying and exhilarating. Anger was coming back to him, and with it, something else, something new and overwhelming. A passion, that was it, something deeper than affection, something more primitive and disturbing than love of women. For a moment he felt it again, experienced it, as he had sometime very lately a burning, raging, invigorating thing, the stuff of poetry and high imagining, the fountain spring of superhuman endurance and endeavour. He knew something suddenly, as surely and clearly as if he had arrived at it by a long process of thought. He belonged to a post-war generation, that particular generation which was too young for one war and, most prematurely, too old for the next. It was the generation which had picked up the pieces after the Holocaust indulged in by its elders, only to see its brave new world wearily smashed again by younger brothers His was the age which had never known illusion, the grimly humorous generation, which from childhood had both expected and experienced the seemier side. Yet now recently, sometime very lately, so near in time that the tingle of surprise still lingered, there was something new on his emotional horizon. It had been something which so far he'd entirely lacked and which had been born to him miraculously late in his life. He saw it for what it was. It was a faith, a spiritual and romantic faith. It had been there always, of course, disguised as a rejected illusion and must have lain there for years like a girl growing to maturity in her sleep. And now it was awake, all right and recognisable, a deep and lovely passion for his home, his soil, his blessed England, his principles, his breed, is Amanda, and Amanda's future children. That was the force which was driving him. That was the fire which was crowding him on through and over the obscene obstacle of his natural weakness. End of quote. There's much that could be said by way of commentary on this passage, but I'll say just three things. Firstly, referring back to Alan Tapper's comment, civic nationalism, this is not Secondly, what we have here, the form of nationalism expressed here is something real from a particular time and place and perhaps social stratum. It is, like all cultural products, unique and unrepeatable and yet it shares characteristics with or bears a family resemblance to other instances of what we loosely refer to as nationalism or patriotism. I'm not talking ideology here are not setting up dichotomies apart perhaps from an implicit dichotomy between an overly rationalist approach to political matters and one which embraces the totality of how humans actually think and feel and behave the final point i want to make is that the broad social economic and technological context needs always to be taken into account when considering political questions because it's always relevant and it's always changing. A noble and viable ideal at one particular time and place may become inappropriate or dangerous or simply impossible at another.